And so when Judas walks up, he knows he has the answer to his prayer. It was no. And so he stops praying and he stops pleading and he says to his disciples, enough, rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And he takes his desire to be spared drinking this cup and he perfectly submits it to the father that he loves. And don't miss this fact. His father didn't spare him because his father wanted to spare us. The following is a sermon from Peace Lutheran, a church located in downtown Aiken, South Carolina. For more information and for more content, go to peaceinaiken.com. Jesus. Our gospel for today comes from Mark chapter 14. Here we are. We're continuing to walk through the passion of Jesus as it's recorded by Mark. And today we're going to walk together into the garden of Gethsemane. Here's what Mark writes. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have had of you into Galilee, declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted, in fact, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing. He did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the gospel of our Lord. Go ahead and be seated.
In the image, what you see is the reds. It's kind of like that with red. You always see the red first. And this is especially true in this image because when you look at the image, the red is in the middle and, and it's bordered by increasing levels of black so that what you see in the middle is you see the red. And as you stare at the red, what you notice is that the red sort of intensifies. On the outside, you have this sort of blood red that moves to this, this hotter, almost angry, this orange, passionate red. Makes you think about passion. Red is always attached to passion. The boyfriend who brings his girlfriend red roses. Valentine's Day red. Red is attached to passion. If I was, if I was going to be a person who tried to, in, in fact, tried to explain what red looks like to somebody who has been blind from birth. Do you know what I'd say to him? I'd say to him this. Red is what happens in the world when your inner passions are put into a concrete color. Red is the color of passion. It's good for us to stop and to think about passion today. Jesus has not just passion here. He has passions. He tells you that in his, in his prayer that he's got, he's got dueling passions. He prays to his father, take this cup from me. He's passionate not to drink that cup. But at the same time, he borders and he submits that passion to his greater passion. He loves his father. So Jesus has more than just passion here. He's got passions, which makes you think about the whole name of this sermon series, which is called The Passion of Jesus. Maybe it even makes you think about that movie that's called The Passion of the Christ. I, <laughs> I always get worried as a pastor. This time of year, we talk about the passion of Jesus. And I always worry that modern hearers are going to think about it all wrong. They're going to hear about the passion of Jesus and they're going to think about the love that he has for the entire world. And if that's what you think the passion of Jesus is talking about, you're wrong. The more ancient, the, the deeper understanding of what passion is, is it suffering? In fact, if you think about it, even, even the way that we talk about passion today is talking about a form of suffering. If somebody says, if somebody says I'm passionate about her, you know, a man is saying, I'm passionate about her. What is he saying? He's saying, I am suffering. I am, I am undergoing a form of deprivation without her. I need her. See, see, it's not just passion. It's suffering that needs to be satisfied. 
that needs to be put at rest. And Jesus here shows us that we have dueling passions. All of us do. It's good for us to think about that. All of the passions that we have in life. We have, we have dueling passions that we have to choose behind, between all of the time. Passions that we have to strategize with, prioritize, even realize we're doing it, but we're doing it. Like, like I don't know about you, but I have a passion to sleep in sometimes. You know, I'm suffering when, I, when the alarm clock goes off, but at the same time, I'm also passionate to do what I do. So I choose. And I get up. We do this all the time. We order dueling passions in our lives. See, in the way that we're, we're supposed to do it, the way that we, God calls us to do it, is he wants us to prioritize our passions in line with God's passions. That's how it's supposed to happen. But I worry that it's not. I really worry that it's not. You know what happens? I... I've made this realization over the years. I teach the ninth and 10th commandments, which are about not coveting. And normally when I have to teach the ninth and 10th commandments, I have to teach people what coveting is, which really concerns me. Because that means that people, coveting at its essence, what is it? It is a misordering of your passions. See? It's not dealing with your passions correctly. And when people don't know what coveting it is, that means they don't even realize they're supposed to be ordering their passions in the first place. The other, the other thing that proves this is this. This is a call to repentance maybe for many of you in here. Do you know how sad it is when you don't know God's passions for the world? Have you ever thought about it? How sad is it? When you don't realize, that's the Ten Commandments. How sad is it when there's an adult who doesn't know how to tie their own shoes? How sad is it when there's an adult walking around the world who doesn't know their ABCs? It's even sadder when there is an adult who doesn't have God's Ten Passions memorized. So that what's happening is you are going out into the world and you have no grid. You have no categories. You have no ability to say this passion is more important than that passion. Here are the tragic consequences. I'm going to try really hard to tell you this story in a way that is fair to the way it was told to me. Because it's important, I, I hear this story in various forms very, very often. And the story goes like this. There's a man. He's married to his wife. They have a normal marriage by all accounts. They have a few kids. Everything seems okay. There's just one problem. The man has a sexual predilection for somebody who is not his wife. I think it's being fair to say that when I hear that story being told, that it's always told in such a way 
that everybody feels really bad for that man. And I think to myself, why is that? I've come to a couple conclusions. The first is this. People are so confused about passion these days that the only kind of passion people know about is sexual. Secondly, people have no grid, no categories to know that there are more passions than that. So like, for example, I might point out to you that a man can be passionate for his wife. And a man can be passionate for his kids. And a man can be passionate and say, you know what? It is a beautiful thing to take one passion and submit it to a greater passion, which is to care for my wife and for my family. See, there are more passions than just sexual passions. Here's the application. We are called to order our passions with God. All of our dueling passions. And that means that every true passion must start out with being passionate about God. And that then every other passion is put through the grid of God's ten passions for the world. Here's your application today for that. If you don't have the ten commandments memorized by heart, start today. In the image, you see the red. But then the next thing you notice is that the red is coming down from above and it is filling up this cup. Under the cup is this face. And this face is being pressed down. You can see the etches in the face. You can see that the eyelids are closed. How do I describe what this is like for you? Maybe like this. Did you know that historically, this story in the New Testament is one of the most embarrassing for ancient Christians to listen to and to talk about? Now, for us modern people, we love this story. Because we modern people, we love psychological insights. <laughs> we love people talking about their emotions. We love this kind of stuff, but not ancient people. Ancient people thought that Jesus here, his behavior as he's approaching his death, it was a little bit embarrassing to them. So that the way that they often treated this story is they tried to explain it or 
In some cases, they even fell victim to actually explaining it away. Maybe you can understand why. Jesus comes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells eight of his disciples, sit here while I pray over there. He takes three of his confidants along, Peter, James, and John, and they come a little bit closer. And then Mark says that Jesus became troubled. Which is really not a great translation. Because really what Mark is saying is that Jesus shuddered with horror. That he was both physiologically and psychologically here starting to come apart at the scenes. He shuddered with horror. He becomes deeply distressed. So it actually starts manifesting itself in his body. He tells his disciples that. You can even see it in the intimacy of prayer. Which, by the way, you should really pay attention to. Because Jesus doesn't share his feelings with you very much. You can read the gospel. Read all of the gospel of Mark. Do you know how many times Jesus tells you how he, how he feels? Only five times we're told how Jesus feels in the gospel of Mark. But only here, this in depth. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. This is what was embarrassing to ancient Christians. Jesus was approaching his death like this. See, because ancient Christians, they knew the stories. They knew that there were other people who did not approach their death like this. They knew the story of how Socrates died. Socrates, the great philosopher. There's a, a picture that you can look up. It's done by an artist by the name of, it's a French guy, so I'm probably going to pronounce it bad, by Jacques-Louis David. And it's called The Death of Socrates, and it's a classic depiction of how Socrates died. There he is. He's sitting there on the mount with perfect peace, it seems like. There it is. What is he doing? He's not worried. He's not concerned. Everybody around him is. Everybody around him is very overwhelmed. Everybody around him is very, uh, you know, depressed and upset and distressed. But Socrates takes the time not to be upset, but to deliver one final lesson to his disciples. And he's got one hand and he's teaching the disciples, while with the other hand he's reaching out to grab the cup of hemlock that he's about to drink. And then there's Polycarp. Polycarp is a very important Christian figure. He was the disciple of the Apostle John, who was the Apostle of Jesus, a very important figure in church history who was martyred. In fact, we the church, we celebrated his commemoration early last week. I was reading about it in my devotions before I put this, before I put this sermon together, and so I read the story. Do you know what happened with Polycarp? He's coming out. He's about to get burned at the stake. He's waving to the crowd. He's praying this magnificent prayer. He's so calm and at ease that in fact, as the history goes, they don't even bond him. They don't even tie him up like you normally do when they're going to burn you at the stake. But if you bring it a little closer to home during the Reformation, there were martyrs there too. A couple guys by the name of Van Essen and Vos. 
People wanted to stop the Reformation truth from growing, going out. We have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We can't have that message going out in the world, so we got to kill it. And so they took these two guys to the marketplace in Brussels. They tie them up to wood. They burn them at the stake. But you know what those two guys did? As they were lighting the wood on fire, they sang the Christian song. Te Deum Laudamus, which in English translates, we praise you, O God. All of these figures, they face their death with almost perfect peace. This is what was embarrassing to Christians. But see, Jesus was facing something different. He tells you what it was. In his prayer, what did he say? He said, Father, take this cup from me. None of those men had to drink that cup. He said, take this cup from me. What is the cup? It's the cup that's spoken about all over the Bible. It's the cup that's spoken about in Psalm 78. The cup that wicked people have to drink down to the dregs. It's the cup that's, that's spoken about in Jeremiah 25 that all of the nations, all of the wicked nations are going to have to take down. It's the cup in Habakkuk chapter 2 of judgment. It's the cup that's spoken about in, in Ezekiel and in, in Jeremiah and in, in Isaiah and in, in Jeremiah. And right here in Mark, it is the cup of God's wrath for sin. See, now we're to the part of the story that while ancient people got queasy about Jesus' feeling about that cup, modern people get queasy that there is a cup to drink at all. And so it would be easy for us at this point to explain it or, or explain it away. It would be easy for us to say, you know, the God of wrath is the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament, or, or to say, you know, this is just um, some kind of story that we should ignore or something like that. In fact, there's a whole Christian denomination, did you know this, that is so queasy about the wrath of God that they tried to get the words in one of the most famous Christian hymns that's out there today, the hymn, In Christ Alone, changed so that the wrath of God is no longer mentioned. But then all of a sudden, here it is, right here. And you can't relegate it to the Old Testament. You can't say this is just a sidelight side light of the New Testament because here it is. It is right here in the center of the passion of Jesus. It is so central, the wrath of God is, to understanding Jesus and what he came to do that if you take the wrath of God away, you can't understand Jesus' passion anymore. It is a wrath that according to Mark is so severe 
that it has taken the world's most courageous man, the world's bravest, strongest, and only God-man. And with just one tip of the cup, it's making him melt. So we can't get away from it. This God of wrath. We need to be confronted by it. See, God is not a God who says, eh, no big deal if you're passionate about me or not. I'm okay with you being passionate about everything but me. No. He's jealous for you. And he is wrathful towards you when you are not passionate for him. He is not the kind of God who looks down on us and says, no big deal if you abandon your wife. I'm good with that. Move on. Enjoy yourself. No. He is wrathful. He cares about us. When we are wronged, when we are not cared for, when we are not passionate, as he has called us to be passionately loved, he is wrathful. This, by the way, is, of course, very, very good news for all of us. It is very, very good news for all of us because it means that God actually does love us all. He doesn't want any of us to be harmed. And he is wrathful when that happens. It's also very, very, very bad news for all of us. Because to the extent that we have not been passionate about God, and to the extent that we have not poured our lives out passionately for others, he is rightfully wrathful towards us. And if that scares you, just a little bit. And if it causes just the smallest shadow to pass over your soul, and if it causes you just to quake just a little bit, then you have tasted it. See? You have tasted just a little bit of what Jesus was about to drink. See, the cup that he was saying, Father, take from me. I don't want to drink this, but your will be done, not mine. So if it's ancient people that got queasy that Jesus is queasy about this, then it's us who are queasy that there's wrath at all. But we need to be confronted by it. Because then we can understand the passion that's at work in the world. See, in that picture, it's amazing. It's the passion, it comes down like a, like a lava stream from heaven. And it fills the cup. And underneath the cup is this face. I told you it was pressed down, but it's more than just pressed down. It's more than just in pain. 
If you examine the face, you'll notice that there's no anger in the face. None. There is perfect submission. You know, I think one of the hardest things for us to do is to actually get for a moment inside Jesus' shoes. From all eternity, he has had the perfect relationship with his Father. He had been loved and affirmed. So much so that that during his life here on earth, the Father had said about him, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. He had been in a relationship with with his father. His father always loved him and and heard him and and listened to him. His father had always been there with him and, and for him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus prays this perfect prayer. You do notice it's a perfect prayer, right? He prays with perfect confidence. He says, Father, you can do all things. See, he prays with perfect confidence. This is so much more than just this mustard faith that Jesus talked about, the kind of mustard seed of faith that when we pray with that kind of faith that the Father is going to take a mountain if he has to and he'll throw it into the heart of the sea. He prays with this perfect faith, this confidence that God can and do everything for him. Father, all things are possible with you. And he prays persistently three times. He goes back to the Father and he prays with all of his heart and he prays with with perfect submission. See, Jesus was never about himself. He was always about his Father. He said, Father, not my will. Not my will, Father. Your will. Father, I love you. Father, more than I love myself. It's hard for us to get our minds into that. Especially what it must have been like When his father answered the prayer. And his father said no. See sometimes. People miss the story. That's going on in the story. They'll say you know the father was just silent. No he wasn't. And Jesus knew it too. Jesus Father answered the prayer, it was a no. How did Jesus know it? Because Judas walked up. See, this is the passion of Jesus. The passion of Jesus was his father. And so when Judas walks up, he knows he has the answer to his prayer. It was no. And so he stops praying and he stops pleading and he says to his disciples, enough. Rise. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And he takes his desire to be spared drinking this cup. And he perfectly submits it to the Father that he loves. And don't miss this fact. That his Father didn't spare him. Because his Father 
wanted to spare us. Don't you see that? That's the story. The story of the Father's passion for us. See, Jesus loved the Father. And as it turns out, the Father loves us. And so Judas was the answer to the prayers. Don't you see the passion? God is passionate for us. So much so that he would have us at the expense of his son. See, so often I think this is how sometimes Christians think. They think, you know, this is how passion works. We've got this God in the sky who is angry about our sins. And the real lover of humanity is Jesus. And if you think that that's what's going on, then you haven't listened to the story yet. Yes, Jesus loves us. Yes, he went to the cross. Yes, he drank the cup because he loves us. But first, he did it for his father. Can you imagine what this must have been like for the father? This was his plan. His father, the father loved us. The Father sent the Son, the Bible says. The Father has the plan. The Bible says the Father has a will. Jesus knows. And so the Father listens to this perfect prayer from this Son that he loves. The Son who had been with him from eternity. The Son who prayed the perfect Prayer, Father, I know you can do all things. The Son who perfectly submits himself to the Father's will. And the Father said, no, Son. Because Judas showed up. Don't you see it? The Father's passion, the Father's love to have you. He would stop at nothing to have you for himself. The father found a way to satisfy his wrath, to still his anger so that he could have us all. And this is what you see in the picture. You see the wrath coming down. Jesus drinking the cup. So that each and every one of us might do nothing else but drink the cup of salvation. I want to close the sermon today like this. with this encouragement. Drink that in today. Drink it in. The passion of God for you. 
Drink it in. Drink it in. And it only reminds me of, of the great book of passion in the Bible, the Song of Songs. My favorite quote in the book, this is what it says. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. See, God's passion burns for you. Nothing would stop him. His passion of love is so big for you that his passion of love found a way in Christ to swallow up his passion of wrath so that he could just love you. Drink that in. Hear me now. Drink that in. Your whole life you have found ways to slake the passion, the suffering in your soul, different ways, different people, different things. I'm telling you, there is no greater passion than God's love for you. Nothing will stop your hurting. Nothing will stop your suffering better or more perfectly than the love of God. Drink it in. The more you know the love of God for you, the more you will become passionate about God. The more you become passionate about God, the more you will be able to deal with the multiplicity of passions that you experience in your soul. The more you will be able to pray just like Jesus prayed. Father, your will, your passion, not mine. So in the words of Jesus, enough. We can get up and we can go. It's time to do the Father's will. And today what that means in the Garden of Gethsemane is that like Jesus, we die to ourselves. And instead we rise to the Father's desires that, that we see here more than others is life and life and more life for the entire world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father for being passionate for us through your son, Jesus. We thank you and praise you and honor you and adore you that you sent your son, your only son, whom you love, to drink the cup that we deserved. How can we praise you enough for the way that you've spared us at the expense of your son? I pray, Lord, that you help each and every one of us to drink in your passion 
that we might become more and more passionate for you, Father, and what you want, your desires for the world. Move us by your Spirit to be and do exactly that in our lives. Amen.